0: Hey, it's Steven here. Before we start a quick note, this episode is a crossover between the team here at Postscript Media and the Columbia Energy Exchange. Columbia Energy Exchange is a weekly deep dive interview show hosted by Jason Bordoff and Bill Loveless. It features heavy hitters across business, government, academia, and explores how the energy transition is playing out all around the world. We help make the show. We love working with the team. And I think it's different from other energy podcasts because of its depth on both oil and gas and clean energy. And you'll get a taste of that in our episode this week, on the geopolitics of the energy transition. So go find Columbia Energy Exchange where you get your pods and enjoy this episode. From the studios of PostScript Media and Canary Media. And we begin with that breaking news. President Biden warning Vladimir Putin, a Russian invasion of Ukraine would bring swift and severe costs. U.S. officials saying a full-scale Russian attack could come within days. The diplomatic showdown between Europe, America, and Russia is intensifying, and military conflict in Ukraine could be imminent.
1: Russia's been sending lots of signals, including amassing troops on the border, that they are contemplating taking aggressive action toward Ukraine.
0: Russia fears Ukraine is getting way too close with the West, and Vladimir Putin is threatening to invade the country to stop the perceived threat. There are more than 100,000 Russian troops along the border with Ukraine practicing military exercises, and now there are thousands of U.S. troops in Eastern Europe. Tonight, an urgent
1: last-ditch effort at diplomacy. President Biden holding high-stakes talks with Vladimir
0: Putin seeking to stop a Russian invasion of Ukraine, which the U.S. says could happen in the coming days.
1: So there's a dance of diplomacy and deterrence going on.
0: Jason Bordoff has been watching that diplomatic dance in the lead-up to the conflict, and it's been tied to the geopolitics of energy. Some NATO countries, including the U.S., are sending military equipment to Ukraine. Germany held back. It's now threatening sanctions if Russia invades, but allies have been concerned with Germany's hesitation. And that hesitation is partly due to fears over gas supply.
1: A major sticking point, Nord Stream 2, a more than 750-mile natural gas pipeline being built between Germany and Russia. Yet Mr. Biden warns that won't happen if Russia invades. There will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. It, we, we will bring an end to it.
0: President Biden is threatening to block a major pipeline that would feed Russian gas into Germany. He can take that hard line because America has plenty of its own gas. Europe does not. Europe depends
1: very heavily. It has for a long time, and that really hasn't changed on Russia for anywhere to a third to even 40% of its natural gas consumption. You can replace some of that, uh, but it's just too much of Europe's energy supply. If you had a complete cutoff in Russian gas exports to Europe, there's almost no way to make up for that. There's just not enough molecules. There's not enough natural gas uh, around the world. So there's a dependence there.
0: For decades, Germany has invested vast amounts of money in renewable energy, in the hopes of cutting dependence on imported fossil fuels. But it's more tied to Russian gas than ever, exposing it to supply disruptions and extreme price volatility. And right now, says Jason, we're seeing the new geopolitics of energy play out, a time when the clean energy transition might actually strengthen petrostates like Russia, before finally changing who wields the power.
1: There's a multi-decade period where the old geopolitics of energy are layered on top of the new geopolitics of clean energy. And we're going to have to address the risks, challenges, opportunities around both.
0: This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, the messy and confusing geopolitics of the energy transition. We're joined by Jason Bordoff, who leads Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. He'll explain how conflicts and alliances over energy may play out in surprising ways as we draw down carbon emissions.
2: Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events.
0: Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions. From voices across the political spectrum, listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Jason, tell me who you are. What do you do? Jason
1: Bordoff, I lead the Columbia Climate School and the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia.
0: What are your areas of expertise?
1: The intersection of energy,
0: climate, uh, economics, and national security. Jason is also the co-host of the Columbia Energy Exchange, a long-running podcast that explores how the race to slash planet warming emissions influences prices, investment trends, and relationships between countries. It's the kind of show that people like me turn to when confusing things are happening out in the world of energy. Jason's been thinking a lot about geopolitics lately, the Russia-Ukraine conflict being one reason. He and his collaborator, Dr. Megan O'Sullivan of the Harvard Kennedy School, have written a couple pieces for Foreign Affairs Magazine and the New York Times about the so-called green upheaval.
1: National security and foreign policy and geopolitics already matter enormously and will matter even more so to the energy transition. As we have an energy transition, we will rely much less on oil and gas that will mitigate some historic aspects of geopolitical risk around energy, Uh, but it may may create new ones. It may present new ones.
0: And that's what I wanted to speak with Jason about. There's this long-held belief that a transition to wind, solar, electric cars, electric heating will magically diminish the influence of a petro state like Russia. And they will eventually. But before we get to a net zero emissions economy, we could see the countries that dominate fossil fuel production get stronger. Jason walked me step by step how this might play out. And then we looked at how new tensions and conflicts could emerge even after we phase out most fossil fuels
1: it's really hard to transition the energy system to net zero this quickly. And that just means there's going to be it's going to be jagged, it's going to be uncertain, it's going to be a little disruptive. And that has the potential for more, not less volatility moving forward. When you have volatility in energy markets, that's harmful economically, it hurts people at the pump in their in their pocketbooks and wallets with their heating bills. And it's not really good politically politicians will want to step in and uh, and do something about that. There's relatively little that policymakers can do about energy price volatility in the near term. And we saw that recently with high gasoline prices in the United States that prompted the Biden administration to release oil from strategic stocks. But most of what they were doing was reaching out to Riyadh, to Saudi Arabia and saying, you have the ability to put more oil in the market quickly. Can you please do that? Over the long term, we want to take steps like reduce oil and gas demand, increase in electric, invest in electric vehicles, in fuel economy. But you can't do that in the in the near term. So you turn to the countries that have the capacity to quickly ramp up and down supply those tend to be state-controlled. So that's one reason why a country like Saudi Arabia or potentially Russia has an ability to be more influential in a process of a messy transition that may see more volatility moving forward.
0: And so if and when we do see significant reductions in demand, why would it be that the state-owned suppliers would be the last producers standing long-term? What power do they continue to have under that scenario?
1: Well, there's this near-term period where oil and gas use are falling slowly, not not, not falling quickly enough or maybe not even falling at all, but you see um, pulled back investment from the large international majors that we talk about all the time, Exxon, Shell, BP, those are the ones under the greatest scrutiny and spotlight. We should remember that when you put them all together, they're only 15% of world oil and gas supply. Most of the world's oil and gas comes from state-controlled companies. So if there is a mismatch between supply and demand, um, you're going to see, I think, less, fewer of those social pressures and fewer of the need for external financing and capital for large state-controlled companies than you do for some of the private companies. So state-controlled companies will be in a better position then. Even in a world that gets on track for net zero by 2050, net zero doesn't mean zero. Uh, The International Energy Agency, again, did this big landmark report on what net zero looks like by 2050. And in that world, if we get there, we're using... 25% as much oil as today, and about half as much natural gas as we are today. That's much less, but it's not zero. So it has to come from somewhere. And I suspect the places it'll come from are the ones that can produce the oil most cheaply, and most cleanly. And Gulf, Gulf Arab producers like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, um, they look pretty good on both of those uh, accounts. They're very low cost, and they actually are pretty low in their carbon intensity. So that's one of the reasons, if you're ha- wondering who the last man standing might be, so to speak, uh, it might be countries like that.
0: And how does that translate into other forms of political power? When you you have... The power to control energy supplies. What other forms of power do you wield geopolitically?
1: Energy, since um, since World War One, I, I think, when Winston Churchill made a consequential decision to shift the British Navy from coal to oil, and then Britain's prospects in the war depended as much on relationships with Persia, where they were getting their oil from, as they did with the north of of the UK, where they. Used to get the coal from. Uh, energy has played a central role in foreign policy, national security, geopolitical relationships between countries. It's been the source of cooperation or conflict. Uh, sometimes, to be honest, that is overstated. We did, of course, have the Arab oil embargo 50 years ago, but for the most part, since then, we have a liquid, integrated, global commodity market. It's about 100 million barrels a day. If any one country were to threaten to cut off oil supply to, or, or exports to the United States or anyone else, the market Would shift around. Price signal prices would go up a little bit. You'd import from somewhere else and they would sell their, their oil to somewhere else. I think the most significant dimension of geopolitical influence that comes from energy is not only the amount of production, but the swing supply capacity, the ability to ramp production up or lower it very quickly. The United States and Saudi Arabia produce roughly the same amount of oil every year. I think it's fair to say that Saudi Arabia has more influence in global geopolitics because they are the only country, even though shale can be ramped up and down more quickly than traditional oil, they are the only country that intentionally, at a cost to themselves, withholds oil from the market that they could be selling in order to be able to play a balancing role and field that call from Washington or anywhere else from a consuming country, which says we're concerned about high oil prices, can you help us out and do something about it, put more oil on the market? That's called spare capacity. And presidents of both parties, Republicans and Democrats, have picked up the phone and called Riyadh when people were concerned about the state of the oil market. And inevitably, if you're in diplomatic dialogue with a country and you want something from them, they're going to want something from you. And that ability to be responsive to changes in the oil market uh, or in, for other countries, say, the gas market, because you have the ability to quickly respond to, to changes and balance the market, um, I think geopolitical influence certainly does come from that.
2: Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt EERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CCO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruki for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon
0: Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich.
2: A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill. The Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say, Political Climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today.
0: Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations
2: and to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon, and Emily every other week, starting in April. For fresh episodes of Political Climate, subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Support for non-fossil energy crosses traditional political boundaries. One reason is because it's often framed as a national security advantage. The more local wind, solar, geothermal, batteries, biofuels, and hydrogen you build, the more local and secure your energy supply becomes. There's a lot of truth in that, says Jason. But this simplistic framing ignores all the other ways the energy transition will create vulnerabilities and conflicts. Trade wars, disputes over critical minerals, and, as we heard earlier, price volatility that strengthens petrostates in the midterm. So I asked Jason, in a net zero world, where will the risks be lower and where will they emerge in different ways? A clean
1: energy world is, in many respects, going to reduce the geopolitical influence of energy, because it's inherently more local. Um, We know that a clean energy world is going to be a much more electrified one than today. Things like transportation and heat will much of, maybe not all, but much of that will be electrified. And electricity is just more local. Most electricity is produced locally. We don't transport electricity over high voltage transmission lines halfway around the world. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, The International Energy Agency, for that reason, projects that total global trade and energy in a net zero world is around just over one third what it would be otherwise. So that's much less global trade, and trade and energy is where a lot of those geopolitical dynamics uh, come from. In a net zero world, the things that are being traded are different, much less oil and gas, much more hydrogen, uh, so another kind of fuel, and those fuels can be subject to similar risks of Problems in, um, you know, uh, the Strait of Hormuz or somewhere else, uh, conflict at the seas, or or um, or other the same kind of risks that we worry about with fuel today might apply to low carbon fuels if they're globally traded. And then the second is critical minerals, and um, we do see today rapidly growing need for lithium and for cobalt and for rare earth elements. A small number of countries dominate not only where those are mined and produced, but where they're refined and processed, particularly that is in China. And that is a source of influence for those countries, but probably not in the same way that I think dependence on, say, you know, one country like Saudi Arabia is for oil.
0: So the stakes of some of the trade wars uh, around control of supply chains may be lower in a clean energy world. But countries over the last decade and a half have been very willing to slap tariffs on products. We've seen numerous rounds of, of trade wars over solar panel manufacturing in particular. Are countries, even though the stakes may be a little bit lower, are countries uh, more willing to go after each other in this clean energy economy in order to control local supply of those products? Do you see any differences in behavior?
1: There are many differences, I think, that we'll see in a clean energy world with global trade. And in some ways, if you think of forces of globalization, which are already in retreat today, forces of populism, forces of anti-globalization are on the rise. There are some elements of a transition. Maybe the most notable one is that climate change is the ultimate tragedy of the commons problem. Uh, If one country reduces emissions and no one else does, it doesn't matter. So we have to work together. That hopefully is an element that is... um, Supportive of increased cooperation and globalization. But there's a flip side, too, which is less trade in energy. So that kind of could undermine the trends toward globalization. But secondly, the sources of conflict that we could see in a clean energy economy. And those are not just if, you know, a threat of an embargo the way you would have for oil or the worry that Russia might turn off the taps uh, to Europe. We could see that from climate policy itself. So you see in the European Union now, the interest in saying if we're going to impose a carbon price on our in energy intensive industries like aluminum or steel or cement we want to make sure imports are paying that same price and we're not competitively disadvantaged so they want carbon border adjustments well uh, the i was I, I hope the united states is doing as much as europe and we're working together with them but if we don't pass Build Back Better and don't do lots of other things, you could imagine hypothetically that Europe actually imposes carbon border adjustments on the US because we're falling short of what they're doing on climate. And then that that climate tool policy tool itself becomes a source of tension. It seems a little extreme today, but maybe not in the future if we really are not tackling this emergency where more coercive measures like sanctions are applied. Right now, we're using sanctions on Iran to compel Iran not to produce a nuclear weapon. Is it totally far-fetched to think five or ten years from now a country uh, is using the threat of economic sanctions to compel countries to take stronger climate action or stop building coal power plants? Um I think that would be extreme today, but I, I could see that coming uh, potentially down the road as the urgency of the climate crisis becomes more evident to more and more people.
0: After many decades of talking about a hydrogen economy, suddenly a lot of people are truly revisiting the the concept of a, a clean, cheap, abundant hydrogen uh, as a you know seasonal storage mechanism for variable wind and solar. And also to be fed into existing gas infrastructure, a lot of large gas companies are really thinking about the use of hydrogen as a feedstock. And so we're in this world now where we could see incredibly large historic investments in hydrogen. Many, many of those investments could come from existing petrostates and, as you say, could turn them into electrostates. How could that happen?
1: We need to get to net zero much more quickly. That's going to involve a lot of electrification, but it's not everything is going is going to be electrified. It's hard to electrify steel or cement or heavy industry, maybe parts of heat in a city like New York, you know, massive skyscrapers, how you heat them. Uh, we already have this built infrastructure of pipelines that maybe could be used for lower zero carbon fuel uh, rather than, say, for uh, traditional natural gas. Um and some other forms of transportation, like if we decarbonize marine shipping, we may well use a fuel like ammonia, so we need electricity and we also need fuels, we need electrons, and we need molecules, and we need to make those molecules low very low or zero carbon and that 's where our tools like hydrogen and ammonia come in. You can make hydrogen with zero carbon electricity, most of that will be renewables, some of it may be some other sources of zero carbon electricity. Uh, and so you to, to be a leader in the low carbon fuels uh, industry, you, you need low cost, zero carbon electricity. And countries in North Africa, uh, some countries in the Middle East, country like Chile, uh, places that have really cheap wind power or really cheap solar power, they may have the ability, particularly with improvements in technologies that bring down cost of things like electrolyzers to make hydrogen, they could produce um, produce these fuels most, most cheaply. There are some that may be able to do it uh, by continuing to be very low cost producers of natural gas and then using natural gas with carbon capture to make the hydrogen. That's what a country like Qatar, which has very low, cheap natural gas, wants to do. The question then is, what does it mean to be a globally dominant player in these fuels? Because hydrogen is much harder and much more costly to move around the world than putting oil on a tanker is. So um, hydrogen might get moved long distances, say, as ammonia. It can be reconverted then into uh, hydrogen. But it's more likely, I think, that hydrogen, if we're using it in a meaningful way, is going to be produced and consumed more locally to where it's needed. Uh, and then you might think about where the renewable resources are the best. So you could imagine countries in the Middle East or elsewhere becoming large uh, producers of these fuels uh, and having regional trade of it.
0: Let's bring this back to Russia, which certainly has a lot of power as a petrostate. state. Um, how much power will Russia have going forward? And when will the kind of fossil fuel-based power that Russia is wielding now, how would that potentially wane in the future?
1: So there's a multi-decade process of transition where the cheapest suppliers of hydrocarbon might actually produce a larger share of the pie, even though it's a shrinking pie, they're producing a larger share of it, and they have more influence. And that influence may not wane until the pie gets really much smaller. So the end state is uh, to depend on these fuels much less, and that is going to Reduce the geopolitical influence of countries like Russia. I think some countries might find other sources of geopolitical influence. The way in which great power relations between the U.S. and China and Russia, you know, might be reshaped. Who will be the winners and losers? The United States, for example, is the world's um, largest producer of oil and gas. It also has the capacity to really be a leader in many clean energy technologies. It has great resources for carbon capture. It can easily has the resources to lead in a low carbon fuel uh, economy like hydrogen and ammonia, as well as renewables. Um, It's going to be, I think, harder for a country like Russia to make that transition. So they may be more of a loser in a transition. And in terms of how long it will take for that power to wane, that really depends on how quickly we move away from oil and gas towards zero carbon energy and meet our net zero goals. And we want to be doing that much faster than we are today, hopefully by 2050. Again, we are nowhere close
0: to being on track for that today. Jason Bordoff, a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Jason Bordoff is the founding director at Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy. He's the co-host of the Columbia Energy Exchange, and you can go and listen and subscribe to Columbia Energy Exchange wherever you get your podcasts. We work with Jason and his co-host Bill Loveless on the show. It should definitely be in your rotation. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of PostScript Media and Canary Media. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Alexandria Herr, Dalvin Abouage, and Daniel Waldorf. Anne Bailey's our editor. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our theme. Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Please give us a rating and review wherever you get your shows. It's super helpful to us. And we will see you here next week. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy.